We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Returning again to the book of James. And I will begin with the first verse again. But this time, what I was doing some thinking about what James is doing here in the book and ways of considering what is being taught uh, through this section of scripture. And one of the thoughts that came to me as I was considering these is that I looked at the first verse and a part of the second and then the last verse. And I'm not going to say that this works technically, but I was thinking of the idea of an inclusio. Book ends to a section. And I'm going to give you my ideas about that just now. If you look with me in the first verse and how this starts out, it says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's the first two verses. Now look at verse number 27. Verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so what I've suggested and what, the way I was thinking about this is this, that if you just read those first two verses and then the last verse, you will have a, a message that is complete and has a lot of value in it. But there is a lot between those two. The, James talks about a lot of things in between those. But pure religion, what's he talking about? For us, really what he's saying is pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this. To be what we are supposed to be or ought to be in terms of a genuine Christian and what the expressions are, the life that flows out from being genuine. And he's given examples here not to say it's confined to this, not to say that someone who, for example, 
meets the needs or visit with a, an orphan or a widow or provides something for them, that the doing of that thing in itself and in and of itself it is somehow uh, worthy of some kind of great merit, just the physical doing of it. It is worthy of merit or honor because it's a good deed. But as a standalone, it doesn't necessarily mean that a person is what we might call a good Christian, meaning practicing in a way that's consistent or at least trying to and being concerned about practicing or living a Christian life that is consistent with what we understood, understand it to mean. But so when it says pure religion undefiled, before God and the Father, that's the thing that's important. So that our evaluation, the evaluation that matters, ultimately, is God's evaluation. Obviously, there are many evaluations that happen, that we go through, that we're responsible for, for ourselves and for others. But the ultimate evaluation is God. So we can say whatever we choose to say. We can present ourselves however we choose to present ourselves. We can claim to be whatever we want to claim to be. But there are, as what James is saying here, there is such a thing as pure and undefiled. And that's a wonderful thing. And one of the examples that could be pointed to that would be an expression of that is what he gives here. The sensitivity to people who have needs and a willingness to help when you're able to help. That's an important thing. I was drawn much, and I've gone over and over in my mind this next part here, where he says to keep oneself unspotted, unspotted from the world. That has a lot of meaning to it. Unspotted, or you might see the word unstained, or other similar kinds of expressions. But that's an important thing. And if we think about when he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and testings, and then we get to this other end where there are genuine expressions of the faith that come as a result of being and doing what we should, pure and undefiled religion, and the idea of being unspotted, unstained by the world, or from the world. There's a lot of different ways to think about that. 
And I'm going to say a few things about it. But before I do that, I'm going to point to some of the things that are between these two verses, or sets of verses, just to remind ourselves of the connection here. To say, count it all joy when you have these trials or these tasks. And then he talks about pure religion undefiled. And then he talks about being unstained by the world. We should all desire that our faith, personal faith, is pure, undefiled, unstained from the world. We should desire that. And we should desire to express those things. So in between, what does he say? He talks about patience. Patience. Patience is a virtue. And he talks about that. And so if we think about coming from this whole notion of joy and then coming up to the end with these two things that are mentioned here, but then patience has a part in that whole dynamic to get from if we can use the expression from A to B, or more properly, A to Z, since there's so much in between. But to get from that point to the other, patience is a part. And so he says, what about patience? Well, it has a role to play so that when these trials and tests come, that if, if they are endured in a proper way, then they'll have a good result. And so that's about our attitude towards what happens, these tests. Uh, what do we do in the midst of those? He talks about wisdom in verse 4. Wisdom is a necessary element for any who are going to live the way they ought to. So he talks about wisdom. And he says that wisdom is available. It's available. It can be had by the asking. Of course, he does give some caveats to the whole idea of asking for wisdom. And that is that to ask in faith, but not in doubting. Do not be double-minded. Do not have your mind trying to go both in two different directions. It can't be done that way, but wisdom is available, he says. And then he recognizes that within his audience, there are people of various means. There are those whom he refers to as lowly and those to whom he refers as, to as rich. And we generally think of those in terms of people who have a lot of material wealth, and people who have virtually no material wealth or just barely enough, but different ends of a spectrum in terms of wealth. And so he tells those who are lowly in the way of material goods how to think about that. How do you think about 
your situation in terms of the wealth that you have. He tells them what to do. And one of those things is, is to point out the temporariness of that situation, not having much. And to point out the enduringness of that which they do have, which is of great wealth, and that is that life that they have eternal, which they have here, but it doesn't end, eternal life. They can glory and rejoice about it. But then he also tells the rich how to think about their situation. And essentially, it's the same message, that the wealth and the riches that you have are temporary. They're temporary. And you yourself, too, are only going to be able to enjoy that for a span of a little while. And so because of that, think of humility. Be humble about that. Because in the pursuits, while pursuing, just passing away. And so he's telling those who are lowly in the assembly of those gathered and those who are rich, there is a proper way to think about what your situation is as far as all these temporary things. Now, we know that the material things are important. They have a role. We're not saying anything against that. But he says there's a proper way to think about what you have and what to do with it. And, of course, one of those things to do with it is what we saw in verse 27 about helping out the widow and the orphan who have difficulties or people who have difficulties and that you can help using your means for worthy causes, one of which is supporting the local church or other worthy things. But he talks about that. He also talks about temptations. And now we use the word test or temptations and testing in the early part when you fall into these trials or when these trials, these things come into your life, which are a part of your life, when these things happen. That was the early part. And he said, count it joy. So those are testings. Sometimes we can say, well, God puts certain tests out, and the result of those tests shows something about us, how we deal with them and respond. But there are certain temptations that come that are not from God. And he talks about that. And so from the going from counting it joy to helping widows to being unstained, marching through these ideas. And so he says there, there are temptations to do evil things. And there is in you, he says, in our breasts, in our hearts. We have evil desires that we can feed, nourish, cherish, allow to be birthed and matured. But you know, there are wages to that. You know what the scripture says the wages of sin are. 
It's always been that. Death, right? So he says, recognize and understand these evil desires. Where they're coming from and where they're headed to. And decide. You don't want them to get to their destination. You want to cut them off at the pass. Because you have enough knowledge and wisdom to understand that if they're not interrupted, they're going to go on to their end. And that's a sad thing. He talked about that. So he tells them what, tells us and them what to do, how to think about these things. He also talks about good gifts. We see that in verse 17. Good gifts, lest one should be of a misunderstanding. And that's essentially what he says is that the originator of all good gifts is God. That we can truthfully say that God is the ultimate source of every good gift, every one of them. Now, we are thankful to people who give us gifts, and they did give us the gift, and we should be thankful to them for doing it. But ultimately, it's God's provision through them to us. So he gets the glory, and the person who is the giver gets thanks given. We thank them. That's proper. But we don't give them God's glory. He gets that. All of this, getting from counting something joy and then having pure religion, which is undefiled, and being unstained from the world. So I think he gives us a lot to live with and to live by. Then he talks about, he gets to the word brethren. And so I'm saying, he says to them how it is that they came to be brethren. How do you get to be this? For his original audience, the word has a dual meaning, actually, because they were brethren in a physical sense, but they were, importantly, what he says here, by God's own will, he gave, they came to be brethren, new creatures in Christ. That's the most wonderful thing. That's what makes us brethren here in the generic sense of the word, which includes all of us. Whether we're male or female, it doesn't matter. We are all that way through Christ. His own will. Without his will, None of us would have ever had anything to claim in regard to having a relationship to God. And so this writer makes it clear that being right with God, the origination, shall we say, of salvation is with him. If the origination is with him, obviously the maintenance is with him too. Right? And so that's how we understand that God did a thing. That's what causes people to become a Christian or become a believer in Christ. Well, we did hear the message that was given 
and we learn of our sinful condition. And we learn that God made a provision for us for sin. And that we couldn't make a provision for ourselves. We could try. Or we could make provisions and offer them, but they would not be acceptable. We'd come to learn all that. And then God works in us so that we come to believe. Oh, yes, now I see. For me, he died. For me. And I receive him. And thank him for the transforming work, making me a new creation, a new creature, not being what I was, with a new destination. Physically still appointed unto death, but a new destination after that. It is appointed unto all, every person, one time to die. And then comes judgment before the judge who gets it right every time. And none will be able to crawl into a corner and hide. All of this. So if we understand some of these things, then we can desire to have a purity in our in our faith, in our lives. We can have a desire to be unstained from the world. We should have that desire because then we'll allow opportunity for God to work in us, to mold us and to shape us and to keep us on our knees. I remember one of my friends from high school, I saw him some years later. We had graduated, gone on, completed college, and some other uh, things. And I still remember very clearly, when we were in school in those school days, and I think from his upbringing, he didn't have much involvement with church. So that's one of the ways where we differ. But when I saw him then, and he came to my dad's house and we were talking and carrying on, he had come to a place where he began to acknowledge who God is, who is in relation to him. And I still remember these words he said, he is keeping me on my knees. <laughs> that was, that has stuck with me. He said, he's keeping me on my knees. So he had come to see his need for the Lord and to have a pure religion, undefiled, not stained from the world. That's a wonderful thing. So James says to hear is important and it is necessary. Scripture tells us up throughout it is important to hear. So there must be heralds, somebody saying the things, but there also must be ears. Ears, physical ears, 
But here in a, in a physical ear, there's not all there is, but to hear it and to have it to become something that becomes ingested, a part of life. To hear, to understand, to know. And out of that, to do. So he says, hearing only, you can deceive yourselves. Don't do that. And so he gives warnings. And he said, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. I think a lot about that. I've written some things about that, some of which I may share at some point. But scriptures is full with that whole notion of not being deceived. And I think about that in relation to some extent about this expression not being stained or tainted or what the word is here, spotted by the world. Because I think about some of the, the ways that the world thinks about certain things. And they teach you, me, to think about them like that. And if we're not paying attention, we may actually think about them like that. When, if we look in scripture, we'll see clearly that some of these things are really not even close. So, deceived. And I think I said before that if we don't want to be deceived, or if we want to know if we are deceived, we have to go to God's word. Because, see, I could be deceived, and I can go in here and study certain things and find out that I can't hold that view. In fact, in fact, <laughs> I'm not going to give you illustrations, but there are certain things in my own life. I don't see the way I used to see them. Because I was looking at them through a different lens. And when I began to spend more time in the scriptures, something had to give. I couldn't hang on to certain of those ideas and hang on to the scripture. A double-minded person, I couldn't do it. So I had to let some, something had to go. And obviously, if the choice is between what God has, is saying and what the world is saying, the choice is easy. We know what the answer is, where we should be. But sometimes it's going to cost you something if you do that. And sometimes you're not going to be well received if you do it. And that's why it's important for us to be able to. It says here, let patience have a perfect work because there's something that comes as a result of doing it. So we might then have to endure certain things. But there is a way to endure. 
we can endure it in a way that is pleasing to God. And that way he can do his work in us through the trials and difficulties and challenges. Or we can whine and complain and do all that sort of thing and come through the experience in a way that hasn't benefited us nor brought glory to God. It's almost like somebody who has an affliction and rather than going to proper sources they go to a witchcraft or an occult situation for their help. A lot of people do that. Why do they do that? Well, or we should say, well, what's the value in it? Well, there is a value, but and there is a rejoicing. It's a value to the evil one and his rejoicing. But we shouldn't be caught that way. So we should desire to be unspotted from the world. So, uh, so that's, it. that's chapter one. So, I, so I'm linking, and I'm saying what he's talking about is all a message to us that has a lot of value, and we ought to pay attention to it and grow thereby. But let me just move along into chapter 2. I'm going to leave off some of these other thing, ideas I had to talk about here. In, in chapter 2, he begins this way. He says, my brethren, just like he said in, in chapter 1, verse 2, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Don't be partial while we are saying we are Christian, but partial in a way that is sinful. We know that people can be quite impressed by the outward presentation. And so evidently, in the assembly, or assemblies to whom James was writing, they had a situation where certain people came in and because of the way they presented in their attire, were given favorable places. And other people came in who were on the other end of the spectrum. And they were treated a certain way because of their presentation. And this here is saying to us, for if there shall come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in fine clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, 
You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, stand there or sit at my footstool. So basically, it's only the outward appearance that they have used to make the judgment as to where these folks should sit. It's nothing about what they know about them that is of uh, value, intrinsic value. But it's, I looked at them. See, when we see people, when we meet them, the first thing we see is uh, what they're wearing and their skin tone, hair tone, eye color, all that. We see that. That's what we see. He said here, don't put them in a category because of you saw that. Don't put them here because you saw that or here. because Don't do any of that because you saw that. I remember a lady saying about her husband, about the first time she met him, that what first caught her attention, it was the suit. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Because that didn't mean anything more than that's what caught the attention. But there was a, shall I say, there was a lot more investigation and learning and understanding before they ever got anywhere near to the marriage uh, place, <laughs> right? So it's okay that we notice things and we see them. That's good. God has given all this to us and given us the ability to see and observe. We see beauty and we recognize it, and that's good. But we don't categorize down, you up, you down, just because, oh, anybody can put on a nice-looking garment and go in. And why should they be on it? They might be the most ungodly person that's everybody knows is ungodly. And then some visiting outsider comes into your church and they see you honoring this very ungodly person who's dressed very nicely. And they're thinking, what's going on here? What kind of church is this? Because you haven't looked at them. And they looked like they had the most expensive suit and they marching along. And they're given that place because of that. So all those kinds of things. So, so there's a lot here really for us to think about, particularly in some of the dynamics in our culture right now, that, that we want to be the kinds of people who look at people the way God wants us to see them and not to be, get overly worked up because we see somebody who has certain characteristics physically. I think that he's teaching us all that. And he said, if you do it on the basis of what that outward look, you sin. You're sinning. But if we are engaging in sin in doing that, that's not pure and undefiled religion. That is being stained, shall I say, from the world. So there's a stain on us from the world if we do it like that. I was thinking about, and I'm going to close with this. I remember not long ago when, when Pastor Matt was preaching, 
And he talked about that. And when he was talking about that, I was thinking about that in this verse, this idea of being stained. I think we can say Lot was stained from the world, a stain upon him. And he came to be in that situation by choice, by his own decisions. He made, a, he made choices. He was asked by his elder, Abraham, you choose. Lot needed wisdom. In a situation, he needed wisdom. In that situation, he needed wisdom from God to know. I need wisdom, Lord. What shall I do in this situation? And he could have had wisdom, but he didn't use it and became stained. But even having become stained, Joe, uh, I said Joe Lot, gets the mention of a righteous man. His soul was vexed. If it wasn't a righteous man, his soul wouldn't have been vexed. But it was. If we can avoid a mistake like that, we can avoid having our souls vexed in that way. And we can have a greater measure of purity and undefiledness. A greater measure of unstainedness. Let's pray to close. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We're not worthy of you, but you have made us worthy through your Son to approach the throne of God, to ask for the help and the wisdom for daily living while we're on this sojourn. So help us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we ask with thanksgiving. Amen. So thank you kindly for your attention.